Morning, everyone. Good morning. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to Hebrews, uh, the end of chapter 10, verse chapter 11 there. As we pick up this morning, of course, we had begun in this last main section of Hebrews, uh, the section dealing with faith being that superior principle, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, basically, verse 19 in chapter 10 and following in the rest of the book deal with this matter of that principle. Although, technically, from the last few verses of the book, or technically like a, a closing to the epistle, but, uh, but basically, this is the last section in the epistle dealing with faith. And we're going to see how faith is. is if you want to say hammered home, remember, remember, remember previously uh, how other things were, were really hammered on, right, by the writer. I mean, the, the person of Christ, although probably much more could have been said about the person of Christ. He did, he did spend several chapters focusing on that Christ is superior because of his person, first of all, his deity, then his humanity, and his faithfulness. And then the next uh, six chapters, basically five through ten, first half of ten, dealt with his priesthood. And there, you know, there were several matters brought up, and they were they were kind of repeated and recycled, and then elaborated on more and more and more, and uh, demonstrating that the priesthood of Christ is superior to the the old priesthood for a number of reasons. And four main reasons were. Of course, because of his source, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Also, the, the script, uh, the fact that he's the priest after the, what, the new covenant, not the old covenant, which was never kept by the people. They broke it right away. Um, uh, and, and he's the, the priest after a superior covenant, right? And then also his priesthood, he served and sits in a new what? Sanctuary, that one that's in heaven, the true sanctuary. And then the last, and, and, and in that context is where the blood of Christ that was sprinkled, applied in that sanctuary is, is a big uh, theme as well. And then the last reason why his superior, his priesthood is superior is presented there is because of his, his what? His superior sacrifice and that is of course of Christ himself of the Lord Jesus himself and uh, and then I mean it just I mean when you think of it in this way at least to me it just it just naturally flows into what's what's next all right and this next section then hammers home there are three main ideas in the rest of chapter 10 which form a transition a warning and an exhortation and if you remember in that of course the the transition passage actually has three main exhortations in those, and that word that we're to get them up here. Well, there's a couple notes here first. Let me just get through those. But uh, we're to draw near, all right? And, and think of these in a in a in a sense in a chronological. They, they make a logical order, okay? If you want to think of it that way. Uh, and in a sense, for any one individual, these in a way, at least, are in a chronological order, all right? For a person to have that relationship that God desires and that they need with God through Christ, they have to do what? They, they've got to make way 
or if they have to take advantage, maybe I would say, of that way that Christ has made, right? That new and living way, because he's that priest, right? He's invited, God has invited, and everyone to come to him. And we must, though, draw near. Until a person does that, they'll never be saved. They'll never enjoy the relationship that they can have with God through Christ because they have to draw near, right? So in that sense, and, 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 and let me say it this way as well. This is, this is true for some other principles we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, right? These, these are applicable, and I think the, the, the basic presentation of them is for the matter of salvation, but in a, in a general sense, then, applying the principles here, you can see how this is true for any time in your Christian life as well, right? Uh, but drawing near, that's, that's the first step there, the first exhortation, verses 19 through 22, and then holding fast, all right? We've got to draw near, but then we're expected to hold fast to that profession of faith, all right? Now, that's an interesting concept, okay? some mistake because because in the bible in a in a sense i want to I try to word this carefully in a sense this is presented as a responsibility that we have which is true okay but it is also presented as something that god does on our behalf i mean and ultimately obviously there's none of us that can keep ourselves safe all right I mean, that's up to God. That's a work of God, just like his saving you initially, if you want to say, uh, is, is an act of God. Your continuing in salvation is an act of God. And in, in, in a sense, it's all wrapped up in the same thing. When God saves you, it's a work that he, do, he does that happens at a point in time, but it is also, there's also a finality to it. It lasts, all right? And, and in many places in the New Testament, this aspect is, is presented as obviously something that God does. For instance, in the book of Judah, for whatever reason that just comes to mind, um, we're taught there that he's the one that preserves us, right? Uh, I mean, and, and without that, there's no way in our own strength, obviously, we could ever continue on, persevere in the faith. But that concept, the reason I'm trying to say that is, at the same time, there's also a presentation of that concept that it is our responsibility to do, right? The way it's presented here is we are to hold fast to that profession. I mean, it's clearly worded that way, right? Uh, but we have to also understand that's impossible without God's working to do that, okay? But because of this kind of presentation, some people misunderstand that as it is possible for you to lose hold, so to speak, once you've taken hold of Christ. But that's impossible because, again, it's a word of Christ, okay, a word of God. But we are to hold fast. We're to draw near, we're to hold fast, and also the third exhort exhortation given in this passage is we're to consider one another, right? And the purpose of that is what? In, in uh, we'd also be in verse 24, there we're to consider one another for what purpose? To provoke, instigate, you know, help each other, right? 
Yeah. The love and good works. Now, when it says provoke on the love and good works, the way it's translated there is the idea that that's the goal. We're, we're, we're provoking, instigating each other so that we will have love and good works. But let me just say that that is also, it's possible to understand it with the idea of like a means there. In other words, that's how we do that as well, through love and good works, all right? Um, but we're to be considering looking after one another, and then that verse 25 is tacked onto that, modifying that, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So you have these uh, three exhortations presented here, and let me just say, in a way, I believe that these three things also present kind of the framework for this whole last main portion of the book of Hebrews in reality. Uh, drawing near, holding fast, and considering one another. And hopefully you'll, you'll see that as this unfolds in these next chapters, right? Then you have the, the actual warning given uh, in uh, verses 26 through 31. And uh, really the warning is about do not despise Christ. And let me just give you a warning here. I noticed this morning as I was going through and finishing up some of these slides, uh, some of the, the numbering and lettering is, it got whacked out, so I'm sorry, but don't get confused about that. But uh, the, the basic warning is, don't despise Christ. And there's really three um, specific charges that are made there in uh, verse, 20, verse 26 and 31 here. But he says, uh, uh, if I can find them here. All right, in verse 29, particularly, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Those three things are involved in this warning, right? For somebody that is doing this, this is these are three like charges laid against them here, right? And uh, I, I wanted, uh, somewhere I've got it here, here it is. I'm just going to read this to you. This is from uh, William McDonald in that Believer's Bible Commentary, which for the most part is pretty decent help. But uh, he says this about those three statements, all right? He says he has, and I'm quoting now, he has trampled the Son of God underfoot. After professing to be a believer or, or a follower of Jesus, he now brazenly asserts that he wants nothing more to do with him. He denies any need. For Christ as Savior and, posit and pos positively rejects him as Lord. Then he gives this illustration. In Japan, some years ago, when the government was enacting persecution against Christians, it says there was a particular crucifix and it was placed on the ground and everybody had to tread on the face of the one crucified on that. And the non-Christians, of course, didn't hesitate to tread to do that. The real Christians refused and were killed. Um, and the story goes on that the face of Jesus in that crucifix was worn down, so worn down and marred by people trampling on it, right? But the second church, first one trampling underfoot the Son of God, and the second one, he's counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. In other words, an unholy thing. <laughs> Holy is something that's special and set apart, right? So the opposite of that, something that's ordinary, something that's common. Uh, or as oftentimes it's translated in our KGB, the mean things, mean in the sense of just common, it's menial, 
that idea. All right, but he's counted the, the blood of the covenant uh, as as common. All right, um, and for sake of time, I'm going to skip the third one. He's insulted the spirit of grace, or right? the spirit of God had illuminated him concerning the good news, the gospel, convicted him of sin, pointed him to Christ as the only refuge of soul. But he's insulted the gracious spirit by utterly despising him and the salvation that he offered, all right? And then the, the, that warning passage closes out with, again, just severe, stern warning that there is dreadful consequence to this sin of apostasy, turning from rejecting Christ, all right? And particularly after someone has had such opportunity, been, uh, you know, illuminated to the truth and, and so on, and then they, and, and some of these people, obviously in this particular context, they, they made an initial reception or profession, profession of Christ, but they willfully turned from it. That's the idea. It's not just like, for instance, Peter, uh, when the Lord Jesus was on trial, and he, you know, in the heat of being pressured there, he, he said, oh, I, you know, I don't know it. That's, that, the point here is these people made a willful decision to turn from Christ, to reject him. That's the point. Very similar to the same idea that was in chapter 6 in that warning passage. But there's dreadful consequence there. Don't take this warning lightly is what he's saying. All right, so moving on, verse 32 through 39, we didn't really get to cover all these last week, but there's an exhortation here. Basically, it's remembering what God has done in the past will help us to be fortified in our faith for now and for the future. And we talked a little bit about that, all right? The faith, uh, you know, thinking, remembering what God has done in your life can be a, a help for you for the present trial or for the future, right? To help us in that. And uh, it seems obvious by the wording of what's going on in these verses here that these people that he's writing to their faith have been previously tested. Uh, notice in um, verse 32, okay, the party says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of affliction, right? They had endured some things. Um, and partially while you were made a gazing stop, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For he had compassion of me, the writer here, all right, they had compassion on him in his bonds and took joyful spoiling of their goods. It appears that they probably gave of their own things, their own necessity, perhaps even, to give to, to help others who were in need because of their persecution, all right? And, and the writer here refers to himself in that. And uh, he was in bonds. He had been arrested in jail, right? Uh, again, that's one reason why some really think Paul probably wrote Hebrews. Uh, there were many others that were arrested and so on as well. Uh, but it certainly could have been him, right? Um, but the point being made here is he's reminding them, all right? At this present time, obviously, some were defecting. And there was pressure on these people to reject Christ and return to Judaism, right? And he's reminding them here, right? This isn't the first time that you face difficulty. Remember, you faced it before. God's got you through it. So 
why would you even consider giving up on him now? That kind of an idea. Or I'm obviously paraphrasing there. But they, they had previously been tested. God had proven faithful. Also, they must keep the faith, and God will reward that. And then he brings in that statement that originally last week I couldn't place the verse. I knew it was at Habakkuk chapter 2, but it's verse 4, actually, that's quoted by that. And then referred to again in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. Each context probably has a little bit different reflection on that phrase as well. Um, but uh, he, he says here, he reminds them of that, that the just shall live by faith. And here I believe the emphasis, well, there's, there's several things, and I don't even remember if I put these in the slide. But, um, I mean, those who are justified are because of faith. That's the only way a person is justified. All right? Those who are justified by faith shall live. They will have life, not death. And then thirdly, those who are justified will live by faith. In other words, the, life, the Christian life is a life of faith. All right? And I think that's more the emphasis here in the context of Hebrews. Um, again, because of what's being said and then what we see right next in chapter 11 here. All right? And really then the, the, the last... I, yeah. The last statement there, those, those persevering, or those not persevering, do not have genuine faith. That is an indication that they never really believe, right? And look it up later, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the Apostle John makes a similar statement. He says, they went out from us because they were not of us. All right, they really weren't part of in a genuine sense. They may have been in the midst of, right? And again, I just cite to you Judas Iscariot as the prime example in the Bible of fitting all of those things, all right? Uh, anyway, um, so you have, have these things. Then we get into chapter 11, continuing on the superior principle, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and really what we see, okay, he's exhorted them, these, this... This transition, the warning about turning from Christ, and he gives them the exhortations here to keep on. The just shall live by faith. That's a principle they already knew, but again, he's exhorting them, reminding them. And he's mentioned, all right, you know, when we remember what God has done in the past, it helps fortify us for what we're going through now and what we will face. And now he goes into a long list of those things, all right? Uh, here in chapter 11, past examples of the faith, um, and faith is always tested. That's a Bible principle, right? Faith, genuine faith has fruit. It will pass tests. Now, let me just say that in the midst of our Christian lives, that doesn't mean that any individual test we might not fail, right? But what I'm getting at is Genuine faith ultimately prevails, all right? For instance, let me give you this as a couple examples, all right? The, the apostles in the boat with Jesus, Sea of Galilee, storm comes up. He's asleep in the boat. He had already told them, we are going to the other side. That's what he said. They got in the boat, they went. Big storm comes up. What do they do? They panic, they fear, they wake him up, save us, save us. I mean, and then when he rebukes the storm, they're amazed, 
And then what does he say? Oh, ye of little faith. The point being is, obviously he expected them to have faith that they were going to get through that storm and get to the other side because that's what he stated was going to happen. Right? And he, he obviously was trusting God, Jesus, asleep in the boat. I mean, he probably was exhausted physically, but he was asleep in the boat. Ex you know, again, just as an example that he was, he was just trusting God that they were going to get to the other side. But they didn't trust him enough, right? I mean, in a way, they probably got into thinking, okay, yeah. And, but when things, but their faith needed some help is the idea. They didn't pass that test. So, uh, for instance, in Mark's gospel, where it occurs, that's in chapter 4. And then chapter 6, they face another storm. Same, very similar scenario. I mean, because they didn't pass the first test. You know, that's kind of the way it is in our Christian lives. When we don't pass tests of our faith, we're going to get another test of it. Right? Because the point is, God wants us to learn and grow through those things. So we we have to get it past that hurdle, so to speak, whatever that is. All right? And so we're going to get retested until we cross the hurdle. Right? Is the idea. And all of this, I mean, all these principles are important for what we're going to see here in the rest of chapter 11. Now, probably, maybe even the rest of the morning, we're going to focus on the first six verses here. But. As, as the chapter begins, we see, first of all, really what I call a description of faith here before we get into the actual diaries of faith, just you know, recordings of these people and this and, and so on. And uh, But before getting into that, he lays down some principles here again, talking about faith. So we see descriptions of faith in verses uh, one through six. Let's do this. If if uh, y'all will read, um, let's just let's just read through verse seven right now. Yeah. Realize that's not going to get to everybody right now. We'll have some other verses hopefully here. So if, if Pastor Brent will start with that, I'll go through verse seven right now. Chapter eleven, verse one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. By it he being dead and speaking. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and he and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, no one being rewarded of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness. All right, and again, we'll just stop right there for right now. But again, before it gets into a long list, really beginning in seven or eight of just one after the other of examples of faith, he lays down some principles here intermingled with a couple of examples, all right, of, of faith of long ago, long ago, all right? But so descriptions of faith, first of all, some, and, and again, I'm not trying to be whatever, but 
Verse 1 is not so much a definition of faith as it is a description of what faith does. Right? Faith, simply defined, Bible faith, is taking God at his word. It means God presents something, whether it's written in the scriptures, whether in certain days was an audible voice such to Abraham or whatever. God says something, and a person believes God. They take God at his word you know, for what God said. That's, I think, in its simplest definition, that's what faith is. It's trusting God. How do you know you're trusting? Because you're doing what God said. That's really simple what it is. All right? So faith defined as that. We've, we've used that example before. And that's not original with me, but I think it is a good thing. So, but faith described here, all right? This is, this is really what we see what faith does in a person's life. And he gives certain principles here, then he gives many, many, many examples of these principles, all right? So faith described in verse 1, it was read, but faith said, uh, verse 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, all right? Faith gives, let me, let me, before I even make the statement, let me try to say it this way. Can, can you, can you, I mean, how do you, how do you put your eyes on faith? I mean, faith demands that you're taking something without seeing it, so to speak, right? I mean, faith is it's an abstract idea. But faith, okay, what it does in your life is it makes that which you can't see tangible, all right? It makes it real. And so faith gives tangibility the expectation here. Uh, okay. Faith gives tangibility to expectation. That's that's really what these words are saying here at the beginning of this, right? Um, uh, it's the says it, it's the substance. That word is the idea of the 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 essential basic structure of something. Some say like a foundation or whatever, but it it, it provides something real, structure there. Uh, so to the things hoped for, substance of things hoped for, things that are hoped for are things that you expect, you have an expectation about certain things. Again, hope in the Bible is not like, oh, I just wish this or I, I really hope this happens. Hope in the Bible is very much intertwined with faith in the sense it's a, it's a real expectation that you have. Right? But faith, what that does, it, it provides real substance, tangibility to the things that you expect to happen because of what God has said. Again, it's not just something you dream up, but because of what God has said. It's rooted in God's word again. All right. So faith gives tangibility to expectation. Faith gives proof or conviction of the unseen. And the, the second statement there, the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence is literally the idea of proof, conviction of. Um, so when when somebody questions, for instance, uh, you know, a, a view of creation versus evolution, which you use that as an example right now, and it's given as an example here in Hebrews 11, how do we know that creation took place? Well, ultimately it is faith, right? 
And by the way, the God's up front and says that. <laughs> you know, people say, because I've heard people say this, well, you just expect me to believe whatever. Well, not really, but God says he expects you to believe certain things. He says it right here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, these verses that you all just read. But what faith produces a conviction of things, proof in your heart of that which you can't see, that it's real. It really has substance to it. That's faith that does that. That's what faith does in our lives. All right? Taking God at his word. And our faith grows, is made stronger by what? By believing God more. It, faith increases faith. Um, in fact, in Romans chapter 1, that, that quote from Habakkuk in Romans chapter 1, it says, the just shall live by faith. I'm trying, I had the idea in my mind just a second ago that I lost it, but the rest of the verse is the idea of that faith is unto faith. In other words, faith breeds faith and more faith and more faith and more faith. Faith grows because it's trusting God and trusting God brings more faith. I mean, it, it, like, it's like a snowball in a way. All right? Um, so, but faith is what does this. It's what gives you the conviction of things you can't see because nobody can prove creation in a, in, in a scientific way or disprove creation in a scientific way because nobody saw it happen that's alive today. Okay? There is somebody that saw it happen and we have his record of it. And that's where faith comes in. We have to trust what he says. But do you realize there are people that take so many things by faith that they've never seen and you know, they never question it. But yet they're going to question what God says about creation. But here's the other thing about that is there is evidence for it. I mean, it's not just like there's, you know, it's some stupid thing that there's, it, it makes no sense. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, ultimately, obviously, when you start looking at everything, everything had to come from somewhere or something. Right? Things just don't, you know, um, you don't walk out the door after church and all of a sudden there's another building in the parking lot that just mysteriously appeared there. If there's a building there, that means we've been in here asleep for a long time. Right? I mean, somebody had to build that building, right? I mean, things just don't happen. And, and I've used this illustration before. You know, if I took all kinds of little parts, little screws and springs and sprockets and things like that, put them in a bag, shook them up, and, and you know, could I expect that if I reach my hand there, I'm going to pull out a watch? Does that make any sense at all? No, but the evolutionist answer to this, if you leave the bag sit on that chair long enough, it'll turn into a watch. Time is the magic ingredient to them because obviously that gets them off the hook. Well, it happened way before me. I can't prove it, you know. Uh, I mean, but the point is, no matter what you believe about any of that, it's in a way faith, all right? It's not Bible faith if you disbelieve it, but you, you see the point, all right? Faith is what brings, what gives you conviction of heart. And there are things, hopefully, that you are so convicted about, you've never seen, but you 
know that they're true because you're taking God at his word. But that's how we have to live. But we can't see everything. Remember what Jesus told Thomas. After Thomas told the others, you know, the others had told him that they saw, you know, Jesus had resurrected, they saw him, and Thomas said, nah, if I don't see it for myself, paraphrasing a little bit, I'm not going to believe it, right? And so Jesus appears to Thomas the next time, right there, hey, go ahead, touch me. And what did Thomas mean? Thomas never even had to touch him. He falls down, my Lord and my God, right? And then what does Jesus say? Well, you've seen and believed, but blessed are those that believe that I've never seen. So, and obviously that we fit into that category because none of us have physically seen Jesus. But there is, let me just say, that in the world, there is an abundance of evidence that Jesus, that everything that the Bible says about Jesus is real, is true. But ultimately, we have to take what God says about it as fact. And that brings conviction proof into our hearts. And we believe it. All right? Um, but faith is always tested. You see, his description of faith, let's move on here. Faith, and then he gets in, he, he, uh, I'm still grouping this under faith described here, but he, he refers first to a group of people, he says, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Elders is just older people, all right? Uh, but he's obviously not talking about people that were walking around in the midst of these people who were older, but he's talking about ancient times, all right? That's how the elders obtained good report. And then he gets into the exact example of creation. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So it's through faith, by faith, we understand that. That the worlds were framed by the word of God. God spoke and it happened, right? Um, so that the things which are seen were not made by things which do appear. In other words, the things that we see didn't come about by things that we see. Somebody put it into existence somehow, right? And the Bible tells us it was the Lord God that did that. Right? And we believe that by faith. That's the whole point. Faith is how we understand that. Then he gives an example of Abel. We'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to the next point of looking at the actual examples here. But Abel offered unto God more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and that was by faith, and by it he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying to his gifts, <coughs> and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Then Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was translated um, that he didn't, he didn't see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God out by faith, right? And then this statement comes in in verse 6. This is what I'm trying to get to here. Um, somehow... Verse 6 then adds this after saying that Enoch pleased God by faith, right? Then verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So when people say, well you just expect me to believe something, no I don't, but God does. 
And God says it. I mean, think about that. God's honest enough with everybody to say, you have to take me at my word. Without that, there's no hope for anybody. They must take God at his word. And two things are pointed out here in verse 6 specifically. Number one, it, well, before I get to those two things, first of all, it says, without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. You can't please God apart from faith. And faith is taking God at his word, right? So you cannot please God except by responding to what he says in the way that he says. That's the only way it's possible to please God. All right? And then he says that you must believe what? That he is his existence. I think we got these listed, all right? And then, I mean, that God is. God says, you have to believe that I am. All right? And then secondly... You have to believe that he rewards, says he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I think you could kind of summarize that by saying, believe that he'll do what he says, that he keeps his word. If you seek him in faith, he will do exactly what he told you he would do in order for you to seek him. Right? I mean, he keeps his word. You have to believe that he is, and you have to believe what he says. All right? That he keeps his word. All right, then we really get into the whole long list in, uh, in chapter 11 up through verse 40 of these diaries of faith. We can get into a little bit here. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I kind of, and I don't know that all of this is there. I think that's where my slides end right there for now. But I kind of broke these up just based on the, the way it's presented here in the in the in the chapter into four different groups. All right, and let me just say up front, okay, we're not going to be able to spend the time look through all of these examples and everything about them. And there's probably numerous ways you could organize these, and and I'm sure there's multitudes of lessons that you can get from each of them on the aspects of their life and their faith. Okay. But the basic idea, the basic idea of the whole of these being presented here is because remembering what God's done in the past helps equip us for what God is doing right now and what God wants to do in our lives. That's the basic idea, all right? And, and all of these fit into that, although, again, you could spend a lot of time and, and, and see numerous lessons from all of these examples, I'm sure, okay? But, but I kind of group these again into four things based on the way they're presented here, and it seems to be kind of in a timing sense, a chronological sense. Because remember how it began, uh, he says in verse 2, for by it the elders obtained a good report. So in other words, he's, he's saying, first of all, let's look way back, right? And what's the first example he gives? Verse 4, Abel. Abel did a long time ago. I mean... In fact, in all the people talked about in chapter 11, he was the first of all these people living, right? He was one of the original sons. Well, let me report it this way. He was one of the original pair born on this earth. I mean, God created his parents, right? God brought Adam, and God created Adam in a, in a direct supernatural way, and then God created Eve out of Adam. And then through their natural relationship, everybody else has come about. 
right? But the first two of those that are recorded in the scriptures that were born were who? Cain and Abel, two names that go together, right? Kind of like bread and butter. Now, not necessarily for a good reason in, in, in the big picture of it, but uh, you have a contrast between these two, a comparison, right? Cain and Abel, right? And everybody understands that you know Cain killed Abel and so on, and, and he got mad, jealous, and everything because God respected Cain, uh, Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. And Genesis doesn't elaborate on all the details of that. Have you ever thought about that? It really doesn't. It just tells us that's. It, it just gives us a brief thing. That's what happened. Hebrews gives us a little more insight into what happened, right? Because first of all, the first two words in describing it are what? By faith. So that means that God had told them something about what they were doing beforehand so that they could respond to him in faith. So in other words, we don't have it recorded in Genesis, but God gave instructions probably to Adam. After Adam sinned, and remember God killed some animals, clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skin. And there were some initial prophecies there about ultimately there was going to be a Savior born, all right? And so on. But, that, and it would be a seed of the woman, but, I mean, it's just given to us in kind of broad, vague terms there. All the details obviously aren't there. And then the rest of the Bible does fill in a lot of different things about that. But in the particular instance of Cain and Abel, this is one of the few passages that gives us any more insight into that. But we know that God had given them instructions. We're not told exactly what those instructions are either here. But we know God had given instructions because it says that it was by faith that Abel did what he did. He didn't just come up with the idea on his own. Cain did. All right? So it doesn't matter what Cain did, so to speak. It wasn't right because it wasn't by faith. He wasn't responding to what God said, at least not in a positive way. Maybe he purposely rejected what God said. I'm not going to do I'm not going to tell him to do this. But obviously, I mean, there's a lot of things obviously involved in that. And Cain's efforts picture human effort. I would imagine that what Cain brought on that day was a very special kind of offering. In his mind, it was probably the best he could do. You know, but it wasn't accepted because it wasn't what God said to do. And the only way anybody can ever approach God is what? We'll just use the two words in this chapter. By faith. It has to be according to what God has said. Good intentions don't count. I mean, that, that's accepted in our day. Well, we meant well. Well, a person can mean well and be totally wrong. But God says through faith, right? By faith. And what Abel did, he brought what he brought through faith. So that means everything about it was according to what God said. We know there was blood involved in Abel's sacrifice. There wasn't in Cain's, right? Because there was an animal. He brought up his flock, right? So probably a lamb or possibly a goat. Goats were used in the Old Testament as well as lambs. And, but uh, 
But it was it was a blood sacrifice. It was according to what God said because it was by faith. And I'll just leave it at that for now. All right. But you have you have uh, what we could call the the first segment here was the pre-flood time up through verse seven. All right. With creation in verse three, we've already commented on that. We just keep going. Abel. And, and maybe you could say that Abel's example here pictures salvation. All right? It certainly does. All right? Maybe that's part of the emphasis here as it's presented in Hebrews. And then it goes on in verse 5. Uh, yeah, that might be wrong. Um, talking about Enoch. Now, Enoch was a number of generations following Abel. All right? Uh, uh, Genesis 5 says, uh, or it's Jude that says, refers to Enoch, says he was the seventh from Adam. All right, so seven generations. And you go back to Genesis 5, and you can count them, and that's true, right? He was uh, seven generations from Adam, and uh, he was a descendant of, not Abel, but of Seth, who, according to Eve's testimony there given in Genesis 5, he was given as a replacement, if you want to say, for Abel. And that there's an interesting comparison in the book of Genesis between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Now, the thing is, Adam and Eve had other kids. But we don't have a clue who they were, all right, their names or anything like that. Because, uh, you know, a question that's often asked is, where did Cain get his wife? Well, obviously... It might be taboo today and for reasons, and you know, actually it was outlawed in the Mosaic Law as well. But uh, he obviously had to marry a sister. There were no other options at that point in time, all right? Everybody, every other human being on the earth besides his parents were his siblings until some got married and had kids, all right? Then they were his nieces and nephews or whatever. <laughs> but so obviously that's what had to happen. I mean, it just is, and probably that was common for a while, all right? But it was regulated under the Mosaic Law as well. But, uh, so the pre-flood time, you have, you have uh, creation, you have Abel, you have Enoch, and it tells us here, we already read verse, verse five, that he was translated. He was taken from one place to another. And the reason was because his faith. According to this verse, says he pleased God. And the way Genesis 5 words it, it just says he walked with God. Search it in the Bible and, and see how many people you can, that the Bible actually uses that word for, that they walked with God. It's an interesting concept. But Enoch walked with God, and he pleased God, and God took him. God took him to heaven, all right, uh, I'll just word it that way, took him to heaven without having to die. In fact, he had, he lived a, a very young life, in a way, compared to his contemporaries. Everybody else at that point that was recorded in the scriptures for us lived 900 and some years. Enoch was 365 years old and was taken to heaven. So he was taken in before he was even middle-aged. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, but then... And I think there's reasons that God did that, okay, and, and for, for teaching later, all right? But anyway, you have Enoch, and perhaps his life picture, the example of him here pictures fellowship, all right? So salvation and fellowship with God. And then 
Then the next example that you have, verse then it, it goes on to the, the statement about pleasing God through faith, right? Verse six, and then verse seven, it was by faith Noah. All right, so Noah's the next one here. He would have been what? Enoch's great grandson, I think. Enoch, then Methuselah, then Lamech, and then Noah. All right, so that's great grandson. All right. Um, so you have Noah presented here, and he was, it says, by faith, being warned of God. God had warned him of things to come, things not seen yet. I mean, so again, you see the emphasis of faith on Noah's part. Now, some argue as to whether it had ever rained before or not. I don't know. It's possible it had rained, but there obviously had never been a flood. Right? I think that's the emphasis of verse 7 is nobody had ever seen a flood. Alright? And maybe it hadn't rained yet. I don't know. Alright? But he was warned of God of things not seen as yet, and he was what? Moved with fear. It's interesting. It says fear. Most of the time in the Bible's presentation of it, look at it, faith and fear are completely opposite. They never coexist. In the case of Noah, they coexist. There is such a thing as godly fear. Okay? Fear, the normal human fear, is incompatible with faith because, you know, we, we often do things out of fear or maybe I should say, at least it seems to me that many times we don't do things out of fear when we should do them by faith. Does that make sense? For instance, witnessing to somebody. Maybe we don't witness to somebody. We know we should, right? Uh, and it, it would be of faith doing it because it would be a response to what God says. But instead, we look at circumstances and something else and we fear something and we don't do it, right? See what I'm saying? But here it says that Noah, by faith, he moved with fear. And this is godly fear. He knew what God said was serious, and there were serious consequences to not doing it. There's a difference there, all right, between that fear and normal fear that's opposed to faith. Okay, so you have you have Noah being warned of God of things not uh, not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark, the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And I got close, all right, but. Uh, uh, you have Noah here, maybe you could say his faith is an example of judgment here. Uh, salvation, fellowship, judgment. Um, and I'm just, again, there's more that could be said on, on all of these. But keep in mind, the basic idea he's laying out is, all right, when we look back at examples of faith, faith in our, examples even in our own lives, it, it exhorts us, encourages us for faith for now and for the future. All right? So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... Your word, thank you for this uh, part of Hebrews that exhorts us to have faith in Christ, obviously for salvation, but faith in our daily lives, trusting you to do what you will say. And we uh, uh, we just, we, we need that. We pray that you help us each and help us to help each other in this as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.